Welcome to another installment of Thrive, an Eastern Health Initiative designed as an educational resource for our HMOs. My name is Visakin, and I'm the Pediatric Content Curator for Thrive, and I'll be hosting this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andy Lovett, General Pediatrician and Current Clinical Director of Pediatrics at Eastern Health. Today, we will be talking about an approach on how to assess and manage the child who presents with an acute vomiting and or diarrheal illness, including how to perform a fluid assessment, how to treat dehydration, and important alternative diagnoses to consider apart from gastro. Welcome, Andy. G'day. My first question to you is that we often see the children presenting with an acute onset vomiting and or diarrheal illness in the emergency department, as well as in general practice. Can you tell me what organisms are commonly responsible for this presentation? Well, you're starting by assuming that vomiting and diarrhea is a gastroenteritis illness. And I'd actually take a step back first. I promise you, I'll get to the infectious organisms. But if I was a clinician coming into a vomiting and diarrheal illness case, the first thing I would think about is, why does this person have vomiting and diarrhea? And the other question I would ask is, how serious is it? Because the serious question may make me go in a very different direction, which might be to do a rapid fluid assessment and initiate resuscitation before I thought about what was causing it. So they're the two things I have a responsibility to consider in parallel. I mean, of course, airway, breathing, circulation. But once you pass that, it's once you're at the circulation, you're sort of starting to think, what is it and why is it? Now, one reason you can have vomiting and diarrhea is because you've got gastroenteritis. And there is a series of infectious organisms, and we'll go through those in a minute. And you actually flagged that there were differentials. So we'll put the differentials aside, but really at the start, best to go in with an open mind. One of the gems I got when I was a trainee, and I hope I'll talk about a few of them over the next 40 to 60 minutes, but one of the gems I got was it's never gastroenteritis until there is diarrhea because the differential diagnosis for vomiting on its own is much wider than our differential diagnosis for vomiting and diarrhea. Now, having said that, it depends on where you are. So I'm sitting in metropolitan Melbourne, and if I get a pediatric patient coming in with vomiting and diarrhea, if I think it's an infectious vomiting and diarrhea, it's highly likely to be viral. But it would be different. If I was in the Northern Territory, the chances of it being something like a salmonella which we do certainly see here, is higher. And if I was in, I've been an aid worker in Vietnam before, and I'd really have to think more carefully about things like Shigella, which I don't often see in this country. But if we were talking about metropolitan Melbourne, the most common would be the viruses. And the most common virus now in 2022 that I would see is probably norovirus, which is quite common. It spreads easily from child to child. It causes, for many, time-limited gastroenteritis illness with vomiting and diarrhea, generally lasts 24 hours. It's the one that goes through cruise ships quite easily, but any institution and schools and kindergartens are perfect institutions to see spread of norovirus. There's a new one that's really, oh, it's probably been described for years, but frankly, I didn't come across it until a year or two ago, and that's sapovirus, discovered in Sapporo, and has a similar kind of a, a presentation of a brief self-limited, unless you've got a reason why gastroenteritis is dangerous for you, illness with vomiting and diarrhea and subsequent dehydration. The third, and this is the one I cut my teeth on, is rotavirus. And rotavirus is worldwide probably the most common cause of vomiting and diarrhea and kills far too many children in our world. So 
in Australia, we would think of it as a mild illness that is easily treated. But if you, you can really become very dehydrated and develop quite nasty complications from it if it goes untreated. And I certainly in my training before we got the rotavirus vaccine saw kids that were 12 and 15% dehydrated, which is quite a dangerous level of dehydration due to rotavirus. That's changed and it's much less common in our community now due to rotavirus vaccine. It hasn't completely taken it away. It's a lot less common than it used to be. They're the big ones that come to my mind in terms mm. of viruses. And then it sort of go on to the bacteria. There's a long line of bacteria that it can be that vomiting and diarrhea can uh, represent in terms of gastroenteritis. And the big three for me that I think about are Salmonella, Campylobacter or Campylobacter, depending on where you grew up, and Shigella. And I can't remember the last time I saw Shigella, but Campylobacter and uh, Salmonella are quite common. And the clues for that is that they've gone on a bit longer. They often look toxic and febrile. There's not always, but frequently more abdominal pain. And none of these are absolute. You can just get uh, vomiting and diarrheal illness with none of these features, but they tend to be more common. And then you get either mucus or blood in the stool more commonly. And it's where in a fortunate place, if COVID wasn't around, I think the standard, if you've got a diarrheal illness worthy of admission to hospital, it's time to do PCR or multiplex PCR, which will pick up sapovirus and norovirus and rotavirus and the most common bacterial infections as well. The trouble with COVID and people listening to this may be listening to it in a post-COVID phase, in which case I strongly encourage you to do the multiplex PCR, but most of our PCR resources have been taken up by screen or looking for COVID virus. And so it's much harder to get other PCRs done in a timely fashion. So in recent months and years, we've gone back to the good old culture to try and find bacterial uh, infections and um, antigen testing for some of the viruses. Not as good, but it's where we're at. And then you get down to really rare infecting organisms and they're things like your amoeba and other parasites. But thank goodness in our community, that's really rare. That answer your question well enough? Absolutely. <laughs> cool. So with that in mind, just to clarify, when you say multiplex PCR for COVID, we're testing the stool, are we? Uh, no, uh, sorry, not for COVID. Multiplex PCR for diarrheal illness. And that'll they'll put up a panel of the most common infecting organisms for gastroenteritis. Gosh, you understand. And do them all at once. Run, understood. Yeah. So actually, that leads me on to a question that we had planned for later, but I think it's pertinent asking now. So my understanding in presumed uncomplicated gastroenteritis that generally investigation is not required. When you think clinically you're happy that this is an infectious gastro, what investigations would you consider and how would that inform your management? There's two times when I think, well, no, actually, there's a few times that I think investigation is worthwhile. One, if you're sick enough to end up in hospital, as in needing admission, not just review an emergency. If you need admission for gastro, there's something different about this one. Now, and it's either substrate or infection, infectious organisms that are doing it. So it's either something about the child is making them more susceptible to severe disease, or there's something about the organism that is making it more virulent. And so it's worthwhile, I think, looking if you're going to admit for gastro. That's one. At the same time, remembering that first thing I said, which is what is it and how bad is it? If you're concerned that there is dehydration or occasionally shock, which is, then I think it's worthwhile doing some bloods. And the particular ones, of course, would be sodium and potassium would be the ones I'm interested in. 
Is that more for so from a dehydration point of view or? Yeah, yeah. Dehydration, but also planning for rehydration as to right. how quickly or slowly I'm going to do it because hypernatremic dehydration, so high sodium dehydration, it is a case where it's good to know about it. And it's important to go slowly in rehydrating such that you don't get a precipitate drop in sodium. Right. And I imagine that would probably also inform not only the rate, but the type of fluid you would use as well. Yeah. But this is one of the beautiful, beautiful things that the trend in pediatrics for my entire career, I got my ticket as a pediatrician in 2003. The trend in pediatrics over my registrar and consultant career has been to do less and less. And one of the things that we've been doing less and less about is resuscitation of gastro. And I don't mean not giving fluids, but I mean, we now realize that there are better outcomes for many kids with gastro if you give enteral fluids. So fluid going through the gut, even though we know the gut's got some kind of damage because they've got a secretory diarrhea or something like that. But even knowing that, we know that there's something about the gut membrane that actually allows for electrolyte replacement in a way that is optimal or better for the body rather than us trying to control it with the amount of sodium and potassium we're giving through a drip. And there's there's enough research out there now to show that the duration of illness is shorter if you use enteral hydration. I don't know why, but it's out there. And that, that research was really, that came out of India that research and was disregarded by the Western world for a decade or two before we actually realized that they were right. And it, frankly, it's still disregarded in a lot of the Western world. I think that's a case of arrogance, really, rather than looking barefacedly at the evidence, which is they're right. So the way we generally do it here is for kids probably less than four, we'll tend to use nasogastric as the first line in rehydration or encourage it. If they're shocked, if they're frankly shocked, it's different because they need IV resuscitation, including boluses of fluid and all sorts of things. And once an IV's in, comes an ethical question as to whether it's reasonable to put a nasogastric in as well, given that that's another distressing procedure to a child. So that's a discussion really to be had with a mature clinician who's done it a lot. And my own personal approach is I sometimes go way above four for nasogastric rehydration because I know that the kid will get better quicker. And I know that I'm going to put the child at less risk of sodium and potassium danger by doing so. That's really interesting because I remember when I was reading the Royal Children's Guidelines and one of the key messages they had at their gastro guidelines was whenever possible, give enteral, so oral and nasogastric fluids. And to me, it seems sort of intuitive, like if we can do something that's less invasive, phenomenal. But then I didn't also realize that it carried that benefit of we're actually treating them better. Yeah. You need to carry your team, remembering that we as doctors, we're not autonomous individuals doing everything ourselves. We work in teams and it's important to carry your team with you. And some teams, if they're not familiar with kids or they've haven't done kids for a long time, this will still be new to them. They'll still have a bias towards intravenous. And people who work in, for example, mixed EDs, this isn't what you do with adults. And it's quite a pediatric practice. And being respectful and gentle, but naming the truth as to what is optimal for outcomes, I think is important. 
there's been a lot of discussion about, oh, is it more distressing for a child to have a nasogastric or an IV put in? They did some work around this. When I last reviewed the literature, it sort of came out around the time that we had a push in Australia towards nasogastric rehydration. And I think that would have been about 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. And it was no worse. So if you compared competent insertion of a nasogastric versus competent insertion of an IV, the distress to the child was judged to be no worse. So you get better clinical outcomes. You've got a procedure that is no worse. I think it's a no-brainer. It's just a matter of getting it part of our systems. One of the things that you flagged very clearly at the start of this podcast was when I flung to you vomiting diarrhea and said it was gastro, the first thing you said to me was step back. And I think what that highlighted to me was the anchoring bias that clinicians like myself who are junior or who as a consequence of laziness of thought where, you know, you want to hone in on the most probable diagnosis, perhaps a little bit too early, and then you sort of miss the, the other flags that can be signals for something else. So I guess for me, my question to you in that regard would be, what are the sort of red flags that you consider in a child who presents with vomiting or diarrhea? And what sort of conditions should I be thinking about in relation to that? Okay, so my advice is always keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. Yep, sometimes we need to, somebody, the ward clerk will need a diagnosis to, in order to admit them. And so, you know, you can say gastroenteritis or you could say if you want to have that philosophy of open mind, presumed gastroenteritis or, or whatever you want to say, but keep an open mind. Both vomiting and diarrhea to a certain extent can be non-specific signs of systemic illness. And so, but vomiting more truly, but it's quite easy. I've seen plenty of urinary tract infections that have presented with a vomiting and diarrhea as the presenting features. And so when's that a risk? I mean, it can be a risk at any age, but it's a particular risk in children that are not yet continent of urine and wearing nappies. And I think that's because there's feces sitting around the urethral meatus in closer proximity to the bladder more often. I think it's as basic as that. And that would also be true because we know that females get more UTIs in that age group than males. So that would be one. I remember when I was junior now, don't overthink this one because I'm just painting it as an example of when it's, but it's rare. But I remember I was, a, I talk about anchoring bias. I was a resident on a cardiology unit at um, the hospital I was training at. And we had this kid who had vomiting and diarrhea, a baby, six days old, vomiting and diarrhea. And, you know, we're making sure we're giving frequent feeds, making sure the urine's okay. And this vomiting and diarrhea is not going away. And so eventually we asked the general medical unit to come along and have a look at the kid. And the kid had meningitis and we'd missed it. We'd missed it. You know, and I was, I'm a general pediatric trainee, a resident, mind you, my second year of training, but I didn't even think of meningitis as a differential because vomiting and diarrhea can be a non-specific sign or symptom of a systemic illness. Septicemia can itself can cause vomiting and diarrhea. Pneumonia, there's plenty of kids who get their appendixes taken out or are diagnosed with gastroenteritis for their lower lobe pneumonia as well. So that's a thing. So keep an open mind. Yeah, they're probably the main ones. If you're talking about infection, then of course, if you widen yourself out to just vomiting, then there's all sorts of things raised, intracranial pressure and so on, which we probably don't have time to talk about today. Fair, fair. I was expecting you to give an answer that a list of differentials, but I like the fact that you went back to keeping an open mind and just 
seeing the flags for what they are as opposed to what you want to make them to believe, which is what I think I do sometimes. Yeah. But I will move on to the next question. Uh, one other differential. So I used to love picking up on a Saturday morning when I was a registrar at a paediatric hospital. Um, I gen med registrar, I'd go and see all the gastro kids that came in on the Friday night. And it was the most satisfying thing in my life to feel their tummies because nobody had felt their tummies and to find the intersusceptions because intersusception, you'll feel a sausage in about 40% of them if the child is calm at the time on the right side of the abdomen running up and down cephalocaudally. And you find it. 40% of the time with intersusception. Now, with the advent of ultrasound, we find a lot more that way. They often present with vomiting and diarrhea. And if you go back to your medical school days of oh, red currant jelly, I've seen red currant jelly once, and I reckon I've seen about a thousand cases of intersusception in my career. I've seen red currant jelly once. And it's masquerading as gastro. It often does. If there was a feature that would make you think, gee, I wonder if this is intersusception, is that intermittent irritability where they're inconsolably crying for a period of time. And that's probably when the bowel is spasming. And then they get a period where they're not. But they'll often get a systemic response of vomiting and diarrhea as part of the illness. So don't be surprised. I think what I'm taking from that is unlike a child with gastro who sort of has that systemic inflammation and will be just generally miserable, you'll have a child who is colicky nature to that pain and then really well in between. And it's that sort of swinging between that would yeah, be really so more. that the irritability will be like that, the, but the vomiting may not. The vomiting may, and diarrhea may be like a gastro illness, but the, mm. the irritability of intersusception is intermittent. Okay. Impressive, mm. then none. Yep, right. colicky. All right, I shall be moving on to the next question. Yep. Can you walk us through how you would go about systematically assessing a child's fluid status? And I know this is presuming if we are managing gastro and then managing dehydration is a common thing for managing gastro. Yep. So I go back to if you've done an APLS course, I often think of it using that system, which is the features and the effects. So what are the features of dehydration? Well, they're sunken fontanelle. You've got to be careful with that one. And know one of these signs is absolute. It's kind of putting them all together. But a sunken fontanelle is helpful. In young kids, fontanelle, off the top of my head, start to become fibrous from about three or four months. And after that, it's not so reliable as a sign. But in those young kids, it can be. And if you're looking for a definition of a fontanelle, it's actually bulging. So this is a different one, but I'll tell you about it anyway. What is the definition of a bulging fontanelle? It is to hold the child who is not crying at 45 degrees and to feel the fontanelle in relation to the cranial plates. And if it's above the level of the cranial plates, that's the definition of bulging. Sunken, you're just going to have to feel enough of them to know that, oh, that feels different to the other 25 I felt in the last week. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so sunken fontanelle, dry eyes, no tears, dry mucous membranes, peripheral sort of signs, and particularly, oh, mate, I've lost the word for it. Help me. Um, uh, do you mean like cabri fill? No, no, lacy type skin. Uh, um, skin turgor? No, it'll come to me. Skin turgor is important, but let's talk about that for a minute. Mm. Uh, skin turgor, there's some research to say that it's a highly useful sign if 
you'd elicit the sign often in well kids so that you detect the unwell kid and you always pick the same bit of skin so some people choose the skin over the triceps some people choose the skin at the line of the lower ribs as they come to the abdomen some choose skin next to the umbilicus you can pick where you like but always do it in the same place with each kid you assess and if you do that then skin turgle becomes a a useful sign Mm. And then with that in mind, do you find that there are some signs that you are hunting for that you find particularly reliable? Yeah, well, keep going because there's more. So we've talked about Turgor, cool peripheries, decreased urine output is a very, very useful sign. What I'm always interested because I think people will vary in their estimation of how heavy a nappy was. And so I don't pay so much attention to that myself. I actually pay more attention to how frequent is the urine output? How frequently did you see? And it can be difficult when you've got gastro because, of course, it's hard to see urine when there's a puddle full of liquidy poo. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, it's a question I ask. The gold standard sign for dehydration is actually comparative weights. And we spend a lot of money on the green books, which is the infant welfare books where weights are documented. And so one of the things I'll always ask is, do you have your green book? In the book, there is a place where you can plot growth, or sometimes the maternal and child health nurses helpfully printed one out on a plot. It actually gives you the centile they've been following. And if they've reasonably been following their centile for a long period of time, and then you've got three or four months where they haven't been weighed, you can kind of make a fairly good guess as to where it was going to be based on that. Not as good as having a recent weight, but you can, and then you can get a current weight. And the other thing that I find really helpful, and I say this to all the junior staff who work in emergency, even if a kid comes in with a stubbed toe this week to emergency, please, please, please weigh them because next week they're probably going to come back with gastro. And having that weight will be really helpful in assessing the level of dehydration we're dealing with. So there's some of the signs and then the effects. And the key effects, I'd say, is mentation. So if a child is obtunded or lethargic or anything like that, hard to wake up, that can be an effect of severe dehydration. Oh, sorry, delayed capillary return, I should have come back to as a sign of dehydration. And remembering that capillary returning kids has to be taken centrally. And I do it either on the forehead, on the center of the chest or the center of the back, because kids can shut down their peripheries far better than adults can. So you can have a capillary return centrally of less than two seconds and a peripheral capillary return of five quite easily, particularly if you've got a fever or something like that. So always take it centrally. And then of course, tachycardia. They're the signs that I use to assess hydration. Mm. Are there other complications of fluid loss that you think about? To me, some of the things I see clinicians consider is hypoglycemia and electrolyte disturbances. When do you start considering those other things? Back years ago, we thought we could clearly and tidily detect 3% versus 6% versus 9% dehydration. And in most guidelines, we've stopped talking about that. And we now talk about mild, moderate, and severe because we know we're not that good. When you get to the severe end, it probably is worth checking bloods and checking the urine. Don't forget to check the urine for the differential, but it's worth checking bloods. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to put a cannula in. Mm. You can do a finger prick blood. You're mostly interested to know what the sodium is. 
And if there's been a heap of vomiting, you probably want to know what the potassium is as well. With finger prick sample, you can sometimes get lysis and therefore not get the potassium and you have to make your judgment about that. But probably at the point of severe or requiring admission, it's not unreasonable to think I need to do bloods. Now, glucose, it is a thing which we recognize more and more. And if you're doing bloods for electrolytes, then it's probably worthwhile doing bloods for glucose at the same time. We certainly are recognizing that more and more in another group of patients we get routinely dehydrated and that's patients with um, anorexia nervosa. That's a conversation that we will have on another day, I'm sure. No worries. Well, thank you so much for that. That's been really helpful, Andy. I think we're going to wrap up here and break this into two parts. For part two, we'll be taking a deep dive into the principles of rehydration, including roots, rates, and choice of fluids, as well as exploring adjuncts to therapy besides rehydration. And then finally, we'll be wrapping up with pearls and pitfalls of fluid prescribing. Thank you so much, Andy. It's been a pleasure having you. I look forward to learning more from you next time. All right. Thanks so much for joining us for Thrive. The Thrive podcast is available wherever you listen, with new episodes uploaded periodically. To get the most out of this episode, you can access show notes and a growing library of resources through Workplace. Just log in with your Eastern Health email address and password and search for the Thrive Group. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please send any questions, comments or suggestions to thrive at easternhealth.org.au. You can also let us know if you're keen to join our dynamic team.